Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your All Star host, David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon on Twitter. I'm an astrobiologist and senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. And my co-host today is a longtime Star Talk veteran, Dr. Chuck Nice. Hey, Dr. Funky Spoon. How's it going, Chuck? It's great, man. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. And uh, tonight, we're delving into the topic of techno signatures. Oh, you mean like in a club? Uh, <laughs> no, no, not techno music, Chuck. Oh, oh, oh. Techno signatures. The oh. signatures of technology oh. that we might be able to detect from other civilizations out there in the universe. Oh, so alien club music. That's what we're talking about. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to be talking about how to look for signs of alien worlds. And to help us out, we've got Sophia Shake. Um, Sophia is a graduate student at Penn State University, actually doing research on the topic of techno signatures. She's the co-author of The Breakthrough Listen Search for Intelligent Life, Target Selection of Nearby Stars and Galaxies. Thanks for being here and helping us out with this, Sophia. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's going it's to be fun. This is just such an uh, enticing topic to talk about. Uh, part of the reason we're having this discussion now of techno signatures... And by the way, this is something that you've probably all heard of, this topic referred to as SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yes. Uh, it's the same topic, really, but we're giving it, we're slightly dusting it off and giving it a new name, partly because there's some renewed interest in this topic. It's never gone away. There's been a research community uh, devoted to studying it, but NASA has recently shown some signs of renewed interest in, in funding the search for techno signatures, and... Um, um, that has led to some discussions among professionals of it's almost like we're rebooting the field a little bit or considering new approaches, considering where we are and what we will do if NASA suddenly is going to inject some new funding into this field. So as a result of that, we've had a couple of really interesting meetings recently where professionals have gotten together and surveyed the state of the field and talked about new opportunities. And one of the people that I met at those conferences and heard speak a couple of times was Sophia, our guest today. Mm. And, um, you know, she's she's a grad student, um, but I would have to say, and I'm not saying this to insult other grad students at all, but when I, I've heard her speak a couple of times, and if I had just walked into the room and heard her, I would not have known she was a grad student. She's she's really knowledgeable about this stuff, and, and, and she's, uh, uh, it's, it's really cool to meet somebody young who's interested in this stuff because it's the kind of subject where the people who I know who've devoted themselves to it are, you know, they're sort of these heroes like Dr. Jill Tarter and yeah. Dr. Frank Drake. Um, and uh, they're sort of the elders of the field. But it's the kind of field, you know, it may take some time until we make some progress in this field. So it's, it's exciting for me to see young people going into it. I wonder if, um, Sophia, you could talk a little bit about that. What What is it about this subject of techno signatures that um, attracts you and makes you want to do research in this area? So I will say for me, I got involved in research in SETI or the search for techno signatures, same thing really, uh, a couple years ago. And it wasn't like I knew my whole life that this is what I wanted to do. But I met Dr. Andrew Simeon while I was an undergraduate at Berkeley. And in talking to him, I just realized that there were so many projects in this field, like you would think people have been working on it for ages because it's such a cool question and such an interesting topic. Turns out there are a bunch of different projects that have been theorized and planned and just never done. 
And it's really exciting for me to be early in my career and have all of these projects on the topics of aliens, which is really cool, that just never happened and are ripe and waiting for someone to come along and try them and see if you find anything. A lot of the sort of obvious stuff that you think, oh, somebody should do this so that we can find out if there's aliens. You're saying you discovered nobody's done this. And so I want to do it. Yeah, Uh, that's a big draw for me. Um, And I mean, I've always been interested in astrobiology and having the opportunity to not just do astrobiology, but looking for intelligent life, not just life, uh, is really cool. And that leads to some really interesting questions. Um, There there are a lot of puzzles in this field, like, what is intelligence? What do we mean by that? Mm. And um, actually, the talk that you gave, Sophia, at this this workshop that we were at uh, a few weeks ago on technosignatures, there was a NASA-sponsored workshop on technosignatures where I heard you speak, and, and, and your talk... Um, I just thought it was so cool because basically what you were doing, you were defining all these terms that we use in this field. Um, basically, you started out saying, hey, if we're going to all be talking about these things like technosignatures and intelligent civilizations and, you know, we should define our terms so that we're not talking past each other and we're all meaning the same things. And you would think, okay, maybe a talk about name nomenclature and defining terms is going to be, maybe that's, you know, that's sort of boring, except for... So many of these terms lead to really interesting questions because you have to say, what do we mean by intelligence? And what do we mean by technology if we're detecting technology somewhere else? And all of a sudden, you're, it's like you're philosophers. You're going, well, um, you know, technology is something created by uh, intelligence. Civil- oh, wait, but what's that? And, and you get into all these puzzles that just come out from trying to define what these terms are and, and just... So this talk on on what could have been a prosaic topic led to just like all these really fascinating discussions. And and I I just thought that that was a really neat sort of introduction to the field. And I wanted to ask you in light of that, um, thinking about that that work you've done and just sort of trying to come up with these accepted definitions for all these terms in the SETI and technosignature field. Are there a couple of sort of favorites of yours um, that, that are just kind of fun to think about and talk about from that list? So when we were coming up with this list, I was part of a committee and we were bouncing ideas off of each other and discussing, like, how do we really want to nail down these terms? And one of my favorite discussions was talking about this boundary between natural and artificial. So if we are saying, oh, we want to look for radio signals that are artificial, what does that mean? Uh, And it turns out it's not as clear cut as you might think. Um, We decided to define... Artificial is something that's the product of deliberate engineering. But the problem with that is, what about a beaver dam? The beavers deliberately made a dam, right? Is that now something that's artificial? We usually think of beavers as part of nature, right? Mm. That's really cool. And, and how far could that go? I mean, you could, could you imagine something like beavers on another planet creating something that's so awesome that we would detect it at interstellar distances and assume that it was some, like, civilization and it was really just the equivalent of alien beavers? But then maybe that is what we want to detect. My God, that's an advanced civilization. <laughs> they're so smart on that planet that their beavers actually have technology. <laughs> So, I mean, so what about that? I mean, what's, what would be wrong with finding the equivalent of alien beavers? Or would you, defi- would you say that, I mean, what's the difference between beavers and, say, human civilization as far as um, technology? Right. So whenever we say, like, SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, what we're really talking about is not intelligence, but technology. And so if we had, I don't know, a planet with 
intelligent octopi that had figured out the meaning of life, but they didn't build radio telescopes, we might end up never seeing them. And so I think that's another one of those things that's not cut and dry, but you kind of have to wrestle with when you're a SETI practitioner. It's like, what am I expecting to find? What, what do I have the capability to find? And how does that fit into our definition of what's life? What's intelligence? Yeah, it's tricky. And then, and then there's the whole other um, question that comes up at these meetings. What if uh, it's basically artificial intelligence that we detect? What if they're machines that have been created by other machines that have been created by other machines and life has nothing to do with it? I mean, maybe presumably you needed life at some point to create the first machines because it's hard to imagine. But, but I mean, is that something that we should worry about too? Or is that just as good to find uh, machines that have, uh, the, the, to simply find machines that have nothing to do with actual biology? I mean, I would be excited to yeah. find alien AIs wandering around the universe. Or, or, or what you just described is Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not the Borg, because at least the Borg has like, yeah, well, little yeah. uh, individual uh, um, humans a as components in it. Right? Yeah, they're, so, yeah, exactly. So do you feel optimistic as far as um, the chance, um, say within the time scale of, of your career, that we um, will or at least stand some decent chance of making a SETI discovery? So any anything with a timeline is a dangerous question, right? Right. But so but I'm not I, saying I'm not saying give us a percentage or yes or no. I'm just saying in general, what's your feeling? What are are you optimistic? Yeah, I would say that I am. And more from the perspective of I'm seeing all of this renewed interest and resources going in and I feel like I'm pretty well positioned to be able to take advantage of that and people my age might start actually being able to pursue SETI again as a field, which is really exciting. And because of that, I think we're going to have a lot more telescopes on the sky. We're going to have a lot more people thinking about this sort of thing. And whether that leads to a discovery or not, I think we'll be able to start putting some limits and maybe get more of an idea if we are the only intelligent life in the universe or if we're just a drop in a bucket. Yeah, I, and, and the fact that we've, uh, we've recently discovered the exoplanets and we know for real... You know, one term in this Drake equation, the big equation that uh, with all the uncertainties, uh, we know one of those uncertainties is a lot less uncertain than, say, when I was in grad school, I was taught, well, there are probably other planets out there, but we don't know. We can't detect them. And now we know there's planets everywhere. So um, that's a little cause for optimism. I think that the landscape has changed. And one of my favorite parts of uh, this conference that you've referenced was uh, Dr. Steve Croft had part of his presentation where he showed a slide and he was like, this is a picture of all of the exoplanets we knew in 1990. And he just left it on a blank slide for a couple of minutes until people started getting uncomfortable. And then he was like, yeah, that's, and then he flipped to the next slide. Like, this is all the ones we know now, like thousands and thousands of planets. And I think that makes it a really great time to be starting to think about this problem of extraterrestrial intelligence from new angles and in a new light. Yeah, it sure does. You know, another slide that, that comes to mind from that uh, conference that is another thing people might not be aware of was the, um, the little drop in the bucket and, and the whole ocean slide where people think there's this great silence that we've searched and searched and searched and we haven't found any sign of civilization. Therefore, there's a problem. Where are they? But in fact, uh, when you do the math and at this conference, we heard some talks about this and you look at all the ways in which we haven't searched yet, you realize 
that uh, there's there's a lot of room out there. Could you could you address that a little bit? What are, what are some of the ways in which our searches are still very incomplete? Right. So the talk you're referring to specifically was actually done by other Penn State grad students along with my advisor. And the result was that if you only look at radio searches, which there are now a ton of other ways to look for intelligent life. So that's only one method. So if you just take this one method and look and see how much we've searched to like all of the different frequencies, how often do we search the sky? What sorts of messages are we looking for? You end up seeing that out of all of the space we could search, like imagine that as all the world's oceans, we have only looked in the size of a couple of bathtubs. And so we haven't seen any fish yet, fish being extraterrestrial intelligence, but if you only looked at a couple bathtubs of ocean water and didn't see fish, would you say, oh, well, the oceans have no fish? You know, what's funny is you could actually look in the ocean at a couple of bathtubs and you wouldn't find fish. Yeah. So. <laughs> unless, unless you happen to be lucky and look in the right place. Right. You, like, you, yeah. You, I mean, chances are if you're out in the ocean, I don't care where you are, and you look down, you're not going to see a fish, which is so weird that you put it like that, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, that was a very good visual representation of the problem. People do have this impression, oh, we've been looking and looking and looking, so it's really a lonely universe. But but when you actually do the math and you look at how we've looked and where we've looked and how much time we've spent and what frequencies we've looked at and all these ways that you can break it down, we've barely looked at all. Wow. Wow. So now when you're looking... Um, can you give us some of the ways of how you guys said how you look and where we've looked? Can you give us some of the ideas of how you've looked and where you looked? I'm just curious. So what I do so far has been radio astronomy. Uh, so I take giant radio dishes and part of the question is, well, you've got to point it at a bunch of different stars and see if there's a signal coming from this star or this star and kind of map it out. So a lot of people pick the nearest stars because it'll be easier to detect weak signals from the nearer ones than it will be from the far away ones. Uh, But there's still a lot of stars that, you know, we haven't even looked at yet. And so that's one aspect. And another aspect is when SETI started, so kind of in the 1960s, you could only really look at one frequency at a time. So like tuning your radio dial, you could listen to one channel, turn it, listen for the next channel, turn it. But now we can listen to billions of channels all at the same time. So that's going to really speed up the search. And that's something that's only started in the past couple of years. Wow. So that's kind of like, uh, I remember when, um, what were they called? Cordless phones first came out and they were like a big, you know, everybody had a cordless phone. And so many people had cordless phones. Sometimes you would pick up your phone and you would hear your neighbor's conversation because, you know, the frequencies were all bleak. Is is there ever a chance that something like that could happen now that you're listening? And what I'm asking is, are you listening to everything all at once? All these different things? Is it all going on at the same time? So I think the direct answer to your question is Yes, but the way that we record the data, we can look at each separate bit gotcha. um, individually. Gotcha. So you don't have to worry about hearing something and then wondering where it came from. Cool. Uh, but one other aspect of this is we pick up everything. Like we use really sensitive instruments and radio frequencies are also used for cell phones. They're used for internet. They're used for Saturn satellite communication. Mm-hmm. So one of the big problems in SETI is we get signals all the time. We get millions of signals and they're all cell phones. 
Ugh. So how do you distinguish the Earth technology from the extraterrestrial technology? Right, because you could be two aliens just having the same conversation, just like, yeah, I'm at the airport. You can pick me up now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the flight was a little late. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you distinguish uh, aliens from Earth communications? So there are a lot of different ways to do this, and we're constantly coming up with new methods. One that I really like is using something called a drift rate. And basically, it's how your frequency changes over time. So that sort of whistle downwards is something that you'll hear from signals that come from space. But you won't hear it from signals that come from Earth because the telescope and the signal, are, or say a cell phone, are sitting on the same planet. So relative to each other, they're not moving, and you won't hear that drift. So just the fact, then, that we're moving, the Earth is moving through space, the sun's moving through the galaxy, so there's a relative motion built in when you're listening to a, a distant source that isn't there with Earth sources gives uh, gives it away. That's so cool. Yeah. That's, that is it's, really cool. It's almost like, I mean, of course, this doesn't happen in space, but it's almost like a Doppler effect for space. No, it is like that. That's, it, that's it, actually it is like that. Very, very good, Chuck. Okay, Do- cool. Very good, Dr. Nice. <laughs> Look um, at that. I'm not... On that (laughs) note, um, we're going to have to take a little bit of a break. We're going to wrap up this part of the show, but we'll be right back with more Star Talk All-Stars. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon, Dr. Funky Spoon. Co-hosting with me today is Chuck Nice. That's right. And joining us as our S. expert guest we've got sophia shake of penn state university thank you so much for being here sophia um this is such a fun topic we're talking about techno signatures signatures of alien technology and how we can go about searching for them um and uh and, and yeah, how we're going to find out f- find out who else is out there, That's so that right. we can be a little bit less lonely in this cosmos. This Saturday um, night, coming to a radio telescope near you, it's DJ <laughs> Sophia Shake and Techno Signatures. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry about that. Chuck is just like fixated on the techno <laughs> part of techno I signatures. Can't, I can't that, would, that would be pretty awesome if we actually did get a signal and it was techno music. That I, would just I, be a little too perfect. Seriously, though. what would you do, Sophia, if the first signature that you guys picked up was some kind of like techno type music or any kind of like, you know what I mean? Uh, what would that do? I think we'd probably be pretty skeptical that it was real. In fact, they could really fool us <laughs> by broadcasting music. We'd assume that it was right. it was not real. Yeah, I don't know. What does what does alien techno music sound like? Maybe it'll just sound so different. We'll be like, oh yeah, obviously aliens. Or if you, if I was an alien, here's how I would screw with you guys. I would take the theme from the Star Wars bar scene and I would beam that right at you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, we would never suspect. <laughs> um, I just realized I am such a dweeb. <laughs> no, if they if they wanted to hide from us, that's one thing they could yeah, do. Exactly. They just disguise <laughs> their signals as something we would assume was a hoax. Right. Um, let's get um, some of the audience questions in uh, on the conversation here now. I think we've got some cosmic queries that people have sent in about the subject of techno signatures, Chuck. Yes, um, we do. What, what what do you got for us? All right. Well, we always start with the Patreon patron, but all of the questions and inquiries come from all over the internet, wherever you can find Star Talk. And so the first one is from our Patreon patron, Chris Ryu. And Chris says, Dr. Funky Spoon! 
Moon. Great to have you back on the show. Potentially, there could be an intelligent life form that communicates solely with light or ultrasonics. What possible chance do we have to, to, to detect this type of life? Ah, well, uh, Sophia mentioned that uh, she said, I do radio searches, but there are other kinds of searches as well. Um, and it would be fun to run down a, a few of those. What, uh, the, uh, the questioner mentioned light. And yes. that is definitely one of the things that uh, we search for now. There's this whole area of optical SETI now because the idea is that, um, as we've known really since it was published in 1959, there's a, this great idea that you could use radio waves to communicate clear across the galaxy. More recently, it was theorized and confirmed that you could use laser pulses. Mm. And so um, that's one of the things, in fact, that people are searching for is mm-hmm. Uh, using optical SETI, using laser pulses. Now, the other thing that was mentioned, uh, ultrasonic sound waves do not travel through the vacuum of space. So uh, unless um, Sophia corrects me here, I think that would be pretty difficult. But certainly certainly optical SETI is another option. Um, what What else is there, Sophia? We've got radio, we've got light. Are there other promising um, techniques that are or, or means of communication between um, interstellar civilizations that are worth considering or searching for? One of the tricky parts about astronomy is most of our information comes from light in some form or another. But over time, astronomers have gotten really good at squeezing as much information out of every single photon that we can. So one other thing we could look for is not necessarily communications, but just byproducts of an intelligent civilization. So the popular example is a Dyson sphere, where the whatever civilization it is wants more power to run whatever they're running electronically in their civilization, and they build solar panels, and they put them around their star, and then they build more solar panels, and then once they've covered their entire star in solar panels, we might notice, if we look at it, that it's not bright anymore. Where did the star go? Uh... So that's another technique we could use, and that's a technique called artifact study, looking for artifacts of civilizations, even if they're not necessarily trying to broadcast something to us. So in that case, we're not looking for signals. Mm -hmm. We're just looking for um, things that they've done that are extensive enough that they're noticeable, like surrounding a star and solar panels, or maybe even changing the atmosphere of their planet in some way, Um, you know, as we're certainly doing to our own planet right now in a way that we could detect. And the advantage of that, of course, uh, is potentially they don't need to be trying to communicate with us. We just um, can detect them whether they want to be found or not. Yeah. So that, that, that's a whole rich area of, uh, of speculation. So can well. I ask, a, uh, just inquire about the, um, w- when you talked about the optics and uh, lasers. So we're, we're sending pulses out. Is that the idea? And and what are we waiting for uh, uh, for someone to reciprocate or, you know, what? In this case, we're not talking about sending pulses. Okay. That's a whole other topic that is um, interesting and we could get into. But we're checking to see if somebody else has sent pulses. I gotcha. Okay. 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 And it's basically just um, f- like flashing lasers at other stars, only uh, pr- presumably really powerful ones modulated in in complex ways. But, I mean, isn't that basically what we're talking about? Yeah, and the cool thing about lasers, I mean, okay, they're lasers. That That's the first cool thing. It's, inher- yeah, it's but, inherently cool. Uh, <laughs> so true, so true. Yeah. The idea of using lasers is if you want to communicate 
in the radio, it's nice because stars are quiet in the radio. They're dark. So if you send out a radio signal, then you don't have to worry about the star covering it up. But when you're in the optical, stars are really bright. Uh, you can see them. And so you use lasers because they're really narrow in frequency. And if you send a quick pulse, you can outshine your star at that frequency for a brief second. And if we're looking for that, then suddenly we'll see it get a lot brighter in this particular green wavelength. And that would be our signal. Yeah. If, if a star suddenly lights up in a way that you uh, don't expect it to naturally, then that's that's cluing you in. That's great, right. <laughs> now, would you be able to see that with, with your naked eyes if you were, happen to be out looking in the right direction and a nearby civilization uh, was, uh, was signaling us with lasers? Or is it just like way too subtle for that? So with the caveat that I'm not an optical person, it's probably way too subtle for that. Darn. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I just want to go out and look just in case. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Chuck, do we have any more uh, cosmic queries? Sure. This is... Uh... Uh, Manifogitude says this from Instagram. Could the Fermi paradox not be a paradox at all? Is it possible that civilizations are strategically hiding from us? And this question would begs that you have to explain the Fermi paradox, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so Fermi paradox, just briefly, is the question... Um, where are they? Famously posed by uh, the uh, American, uh, 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 Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi, who was one of the people important, uh, well, 20, 20th century physics in the Manhattan Project, who um, posed this question, um, meaning if there are other civilizations out there and they develop advanced technology, it would be pretty obvious um, that they were out there. And since it's not, mm -hmm. then maybe that means... There's an absence that they're not there. That's what we mean by a paradox. It's only a paradox, though, if we have good evidence that they're not there. And as Sophia explained to us before, we actually don't because there's the search is so, um, so much in its infancy. Right. So, I mean, the Fermi paradox is interesting as a conceptual framework, but it's not probably, I would say it's not a paradox because we haven't looked thoroughly enough to conclude there's no signal. Nonetheless, the questioner, what he really wants to get at, now that we've explained the Fermi paradox, is I think he was asking, is it possible that... They don't um, want to be found. That we haven't found them because they don't want to be found. Right. Uh, do, do you have a thought about that, Sophia? Yeah. So I think, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think this is called something like the galactic zoo hypothesis. Like yes. we're in a zoo and everybody's just like looking at us and knows we're there, but... <laughs> You know, keep they, themselves hidden. They've Just decided <laughs> they've decided that we should not know about them. <laughs> right. So there have been some studies actually showing that if you wanted, uh, one of the ways that we discover planets is when a planet passes in front of its host star and it makes the host star look a little dimmer. And so we look for those dips and then we can figure out that there's a planet there. And there's this cool paper that suggests that maybe if there was a civilization that didn't want to be found, they could shine a light at that precise time they were passing in front of their star so that they could make their signal totally disappear. And there could be a planet there and we would never know. Uh, so I think that's a cool little interpretation of it. Wow. So uh, they could actually hide the existence of an exoplanet by negating that uh, the, the dip in, in, of a transiting planet. It's a, cl a planet cloaking device. <laughs> I think that might actually be in the title of the paper. This is David Kipping's work. Interesting. Um, 
Well, we haven't found any of those yet, but I suppose that just might mean they're doing a good job. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of these, there, there are a lot of interesting possible answers to the, the, the so-called Fermi paradox. And, mm-hmm. you know, all you can really do is like throw your hands up and say, yep, that's possible. Um, but until we search well and can, um, you know, sort of do the obvious searches, there's no reason to really go there because it may just be that we haven't found them because we haven't looked. So now this question has made me think about um, uh, what would happen? Okay. And I'm sure you guys know that there's got to be a protocol, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so we're listening, right? And we get a signal, right? What's next? And ultimately what I want to know is do we respond to the signal? Because now we're now I'm scared. <laughs> so, so there is a protocol. Um, the it, what is it? The international uh, the I triple A international astronautical. Uh, I should know, but there, there, there's a group, an international SETI association of of SETI scientists who have a protocol, and um, it's spelled out. And it's agreed to, and I mean, it's it's always under refinement, and there's ideas that we should refine it further. But okay. there, there is a protocol, and, and basically, to sum it up, it says, if you detect something, first, you try to confirm that it's real. You don't make an announcement on something that could be a false alarm, because there are false alarms. And then, the first thing you do is you alert other observatories who can look for it independently and help you confirm that it's real because you want to ideally find it from more than one observatory to make sure it's not some local interference or something that's fooling you. Right. And then once you confirm that it's real, then you basically tell everyone. You alert governments and the media and everyone. In other words, there's there's very much a attitude of full transparency, don't keep anything secret. Okay. But don't make an announcement until you're sure. So those are the two steps. All right. So now that we know, that, so there's my next step. So we know, we, we've confirmed it. A call came into us. We, we've received the call. Do we return the call? Do we try to actually answer back? That, my friend, is more controversial. Yeah. That's part of the question. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's, there, that's... there is not uniform agreement about that. Oh, um, and, um, there's certainly no plan in place so okay. that like, oh, if we get a signal next week, then the following week, here's the message we're going to send out. Uh, it's a really interesting question. Um, I would love for us to be confronted with that problem because it would mean we had made a SETI success. But, uh, as far as I know, uh, and back me up or, or refute me if I'm wrong, Sophia, but there's, there's no, uh, widespread consensus on that part of the question at this point, is there? No, I don't believe so. And that's, you know, a little bit concerning and something that where work should definitely be done because as soon as you make that announcement, then you're going to have groups all over the world, some of them with access to radio transmitters who all have their own ideas on what should be said and if something should be said. And one thing I thought was interesting, again, from the same conference was this idea from Sarah Walker that Maybe it won't be so clear as like we get a message coming in and it's a stream of ones and zeros and we decode this great message, but it might be something more like we get something and it's like, that could be an alien signal, maybe, and then we're going to have to maybe see a couple of them before we can tell if it's natural or artificial. So that adds another layer of complexity because you might not even know if 
you're replying to something that's a real message or not. Did you even get a message? Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, bo- uh, two good points. One, as soon as there's an announcement and that star up there in that in that constellation has sent us what we believe is a signal there's nothing to stop people even with their backyard um you know right amateur tra- saying i'm gonna send a message back you know buy my product or listen to my <laughs> listen to my mixtape or join my religion or right. <laughs> whatever but also it's quite possible and people have said this about biosignatures just detecting life as well as techno signatures that at first it might be well we found some anomaly and that could be a techno signature, but we're not sure. We have to study it for, who knows, maybe another decade before we learn more. And so if we're in that intermediate state, uh, then do we hold back or how do we get everyone to hold back? So right. it's, it's one of these weird questions where it's hard to imagine sort of global coordination and yet global coordination is maybe required. So um, yeah, it's something that we should give some more thought to. All right, we're going to take another short break. But we'll be back with more about techno signatures and the search for alien technology when Star Talk returns. Greetings, sentient creatures, and welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. We're communicating with you by electromagnetic radiation across the wonders of the internet. And I'm David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon, your All Star host. And with me is Chuck Nice, co-hosting. Yes, sir. Great to be here. And also joining us is Sophia Shake, a grad student at Penn State University working on the subject of technosignatures, who's helping us figure out what's really going on here in this, hopefully, this communicative universe of ours. And we are also taking your cosmic queries, and Chuck's got a stack of them that have been sent in by listeners. So, Chuck, why don't you throw some more cosmic queries at us? All right, let's just jump right back into it, and uh, let's go to Ron Borum. Uh, And Ron says, alien life in the galaxy. Wouldn't we pick up radio signals from an alien intelligent civilization long before they could develop the technology to travel to Earth? Uh, I guess, speaking to the fact that you know, Stephen Hawking says we should never contact an alien civilization because if they're that advanced, they'll come and kill us all. But uh, is that the way it would work? Would they? I mean, it, well, I, that fir- first of all, about Stephen Hawking, brilliant, brilliant cosmologist. Anything he says about black holes, cosmology, I'm going to take his word for it. Okay. But he also had this habit of making pronouncements about other things, mm-hmm. like the future of Earth and aliens and stuff, which. Uh, you know, how can I say this? Hey, nobody's an expert on everything. <laughs> Nicely done. And, and we have we have this habit of what we venerate somebody who's an expert on Correct. one thing, and we yeah. think that everything they say about everything else is totally. It's got to be gospel. Uh, so, so Stephen Hawking didn't really know more about aliens than than Dr. Chuck Nice, um, <laughs> um, which is you know. That's saying a lot because Chuck knows a lot about aliens. But but at any rate, so. It's interesting the, the way the questioner phrased that because we sort of have assumptions about um, the development, the timescale of development of alien technology. We look at Earth and we developed radio right. long before we developed the ability to travel at interstellar distances, which we still haven't developed and we don't know if we will ever develop, although mm-hmm. we have some, some schemes now. Um, so is that going to be universally true? Um, 
I think you could make an argument that it is because it's so much easier to send radio waves than to send spacecraft. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting that we developed the capability to to do radio astronomy right around the same historical moment as we developed the ability to do spaceflight within our own solar system. And those are not completely unrelated. They're both part of the same sort of explosion of technology that happened in the 20th century. You could make a case for there being some kind of universal path of technical evolution that would be similar on different planets with different Mm -hmm. civilizations. Yet I think we also have to acknowledge that um, our ideas about that are shaped by the history of technology on our own world. And who knows what order they would discover right. things in. But I don't know. Uh, is it, It's hard to imagine a civilization that could travel between the stars but didn't have the technology to message between the stars. But it's easy to imagine things the other way around. Do you have a thought about that, Sophia? Um, well, I guess kind of on this idea of the order in which you develop technologies, for me, because I started looking for radio signals first. I was like, oh, radio is the obvious place to look. Why would anyone do optical study? Hmm. And then I looked and I realized we could have easily invented those the other way around. And now I've been much more convinced over time about how optical study is a pretty fantastic way to look as well. And so I think we do just make these assumptions based on how things went on Earth. Space flight's a little trickier. Uh, This is... My personal opinion that it's always going to be a tricky problem, but who knows? The future may prove me wrong. Yeah, I mean, one, uh, one thing that just popped into my head is, you know, we've discovered um, this. Um, what's the, uh, the the planetary system with the, the, the seven planets that are all maybe sort of Earth-like? Um, the, uh, I'm blanking on. Um, Trappist. Trappist. Yes, thank you. Dr. Nice, <laughs> almost Dr. Shake. Um, the, 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 uh, the Trappist system. You can imagine in a sort of science fiction scenario, uh, creatures there with these other very nearby planets looming in the sky during their whole history, they might have developed things in a different order. Maybe spaceflight would be something that would have occurred to them earlier in their history, mm-hmm. and that would have been more of an emphasis because there would be these other worlds that you could obviously go to that were nearby. Nonetheless, it's really hard to imagine they would develop interstellar flight um, before they would develop interstellar communication. Maybe I'm just being sort of Earth chauvinist here, but uh, but that right. seems to me like it's probably going to be the order that things happen in. Well, I mean, when you take into consideration the way technologies have um, emerged on Earth, when you think about it, before we could communicate across continents— we actually traveled across continents. So it could be feasible. No, that's, that's a good counter example. Yeah. 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 Oh. Wow. Okay. Well, who knew? What a great question, my friend. Um, way, to, way to go, Ron. Appreciate that. Let's take another question from, um, I like this, John Tweak. <laughs> I just like saying John Tweak. <laughs> uh, is SETI searching for exotic exhaust trails left in the wake of technologically advanced starships traversing interstellar or intergalactic space? Thanks. That's and he, a, that, and he says, hey, David. So go ahead. That's an awesome question. Hey, John Tweak. I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I know him on Twitter. Yeah. Um, it is a cool name, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a great question. There have certainly been papers, speculative papers written about detecting um, interstellar craft of different kind. Um, I don't know. Is exhaust trails the right way to think about it, Sophia? 
I'm not sure. I've also heard of a couple papers that try to tackle this idea of what signatures get left behind when you travel in a relativistic spacecraft, and could we look for those? Hmm. But I don't know too much about the subject. Well, I mean, part of the problem is we don't really know how to build an interstellar spacecraft, right. because right. if we did, we would... <laughs> be doing it but um and so it's a little speculative to say well here's the kind of exhaust trail they'd leave behind but right. but people have these sort of um you know very speculative ideas and certainly some of them um have there have been papers written well if they were going to do this kind of interstellar propulsion then we might be you know a ramjet or something that that is you know are incredibly here's one here's one of the ways we talk about um this this uh, the starshot idea where you're going to send a really intense laser pulse right and and uh, use that to propel a very low mass um, starship to an, you know, people were even talking about trying to do this from Earth later in the century. So those really intense laser pulses would be something you could detect. So right. yeah, the idea of indirectly detecting interstellar flight through um, some exhaust or some other, just the signature of the intense energy used for that is, uh, is, is kind of a cool idea. Cool, man. Excellent question. Um, let's see. This is, um, Brackenstein or Brackenstein, uh, from Instagram says, hi, uh, I'm Braxton Hockley and I'm a high school student from Ohio. Well, hello, Braxton. Uh, I know it's not a science question, but what advice would you give to me, an aspiring astrobiologist? How cool is that? And both of you guys are in that area. So... What do you, first of all, what made you say, hey, astrobiology, first of all? Uh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take a crack at it, and then I'll let Sophia take a crack at it. Um, so, so for me, uh, I mean, I was just excited by space when I was a kid because there were all these new things happening, first missions to all these planets and stuff, and I thought, wow, I, maybe I could be part of that. And then astrobiology kind of came along, and people started taking more and more seriously the idea that we could actually search for life elsewhere based cool. on the discovery of extremophiles on Earth and the, our growing knowledge about other planets. It started to seem like a realistic quest, that it wasn't ridiculous that we might be able to find life elsewhere, and it just seemed so exciting. It was like a science fiction quest that you could do with actual science. And the other thing that was really cool about it was it's so interdisciplinary. If you want to be an astrobiologist, you don't have to study just one thing. It helps if you know some astronomy and some biology and some earth science. So I liked that, that you could combine a lot of different things. That's what excited me. And if I, want, if I were going to give some advice to our friend here, I would say, um, you know, it sounds cliche, but follow your passion. If you're excited by it, that's a good sign. You know, study hard, learn a lot of science. And what's cool about astrobiology is you can come into it from a lot of different directions. If you're really excited by physics and, and math, study that, and you can get into astrobiology doing that. If you're more excited by rocks and geology and going out in the field and you know getting your hands dirty, mm -hmm. or if you're more excited by, about biology, study that. You can go into almost any area, any one of these related areas of science and get an undergraduate degree in that area or astronomy, uh, any one of these, and then you can use that, you can leverage that to get into astrobiology. So it's, it's wonderful in that way. It doesn't, you don't have to just do one thing, just like follow that science, stay aware of all these fields, but you can, you can really major in almost any of those areas that excite you and you can end up doing astrobiology. Cool. Very cool. What do you think, Sophia? Yeah, for me, when I was going into college, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to study physics and astronomy, and I'm going to be the next Einstein, and 
do all this theoretical stuff and find the theory of everything. And then I was like, wow, that is a lot of math and doesn't sound very fun anymore. So I started definitely liking the astronomy side more and realizing that's what I wanted to do. And then just started branching out and taking classes. I took a geodynamics class and I knew nothing about geology, but it was available. And I was like, what the heck, why not? And then I realized I like earth science stuff as well. And I like geology as well. And that, like you said, that's the cool thing about astrobiology is you can approach it from so many different angles. And you can also avoid the angles that you don't really want to touch. Like, I, I don't do chemistry. Chemistry is not my thing. And I can, you know, astrobiology is such a huge field that there are astrobiologists who do almost all chemistry. And then there are people like me who do no chemistry. Um, so yeah, I guess from my experience, uh, I would say don't be afraid to branch out and try a lot of different things. Don't be afraid if you don't like some of those things and learn to code early programming, man, no matter what you do. <laughs> wow. Yeah, great that, advice. That's really good advice. Look at that, especially in this day and age. Yeah. I thought you were going to say I wanted to be the next Einstein. I realized I didn't have the right hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us will ever have hair that great. Um, let's go to, oh, wait, I, I got to find his, uh, here it is. This is Michael Angry Mob Ranger, okay? <laughs> I don't know if I want to hear from the Angry Mob. <laughs> exactly. Here's the Angry Mob Ranger, Michael, who says this. Should we be, or are we looking for signatures that long-dead civilizations or civilization-ending disasters might give off, such as radioactive planets, non-natural runaway greenhouse effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I think that's kind of cool. Would we be able to, like, let's say, for instance, we finally, they did it, man. They did it. Damn you. Damn you all to hell. Right? <laughs> Suppose that happens, okay? And uh, we, we take ourselves out. Would there be a signature left on Earth that some other civilization might one day come across this planet and say, wow, people were here and they really crapped the bed? Well, <laughs> funny, uh, it's an interesting way to put it, Chuck, but <laughs> but uh, actually, there were a couple of things that came up at our Techno Signatures workshop that relate to this angry mob question. One was the fascinating question that got raised, if there was a past technical civilization on Earth that had been wiped out or didn't last for whatever reason a long, long time ago, millions of years ago, hundreds of millions of years ago, would we necessarily have detected it? Or could there be, uh, could we have missed in the geological record of Earth signs of a past civilization? Wow. Um, and, and there was some argument about this. Um, it wasn't like argument, like people were like throwing things and, you know, but there was well, some, some, some constructive um, debate <laughs> about this question. Um, but there, there are scientists who've claimed, I'm not sure I buy the claim, but it's a, a very interesting thing to consider that we, it's possible that in the geological record of Earth, we could have missed past civilizations. Wow. Um, but then... This leads to the whole other question of when we're searching for extraterrestrial technology, is there a category of discovery we could make of a civilization that doesn't exist anymore, mm -hmm. but we're find, finding the signs of a past civilization, which in itself, it would, maybe that would be disappointing, but it would also be a very exciting discovery. And I think, Sophia, if I'm correct, that in this lexicon you developed where you were defining these different terms, there was actually a specific um, term for that kind of discovery, wasn't there? This might be what you're referring to is some discoveries are going to 
the like beacons that have content. Like we can look at it and we it may not be it necessarily like a laser signal or something like that. We can look at it and we can learn a lot about whoever made it. And then there also might be content-free detections, uh, which all you can say is, yeah, there was something there, but we can't know anything else about it. But isn't, isn't there also, and maybe I'm wrong about this, if they're not, there should be, but something like a paleo civilization or a civilization that doesn't actually exist anymore, but we're detecting the remnants of them. Maybe we don't have a term for that, but it's, it's definitely a category of discovery we could make. Yeah, I don't know if that's something that has been discussed, um, or at least not by our group when we were making the terminology, but we specifically said, like, there's no way you can make an entire dictionary and have it all be complete and have everyone all agree. So Absolutely. it's a work in progress. Yeah, no, you guys have done a great job. But in the next round, we might want to include paleo or relict or extinct civilizations. <laughs> At any rate, um, we could go on forever talking about yeah. techno signatures with um, Sophia and, and, and Chuck. But um, unfortunately, we're out of time. And so we're going to have to wrap it up. That's it for this episode of Star Talk All-Stars. Big thanks to my co-host, Chuck Nice. Always a pleasure. And thank you so much to Sophia Shake for dropping in and talking to us about this. Yeah, it was really fun. Absolutely. I've been your host, David Grinspoon, a.k.a. Dr. Funky Spoon. And until next time, keep it funky. Funky.